when you're in that state where you don't care about anything, and then you're starting to think about suicide as an option, combining that with extreme apathy is a very dangerous place to be. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm excited with me today is Gabe Nathan. Gabe is the editor-in-chief of OC87 Recovery Diaries and a board member of Prevent Suicide Pennsylvania. Gabe, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to have you on the show, Gabe. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first time we met. I still remember. Uh, it was from the airport to yep. in, in kind of the limousine type of ride. It was a pretty fancy ride uh, to the uh, conference, Healthy Voices. Yes, that's right. And, it, you know, you say limousine. It, it's like, you know, don't people don't get excited. It wasn't like, you know, one of those Cadillacs from the seventies with the big tail fins and the plush leather seats. Like a, you know, the modern limousine is just not what they used to be. That's, not that, that I'm complaining. It was true. fine, but you know, <laughs> in my mind, it was really pretty damn comfortable. It so, was pretty uh, swank. It yeah. was, yeah. And uh, and it was great striking up a conversation with you, and realizing that we were both going obviously to the same conference, but also both as mental health advocates. Yes, and both. I depressed men, both <laughs> depressed is, men. Know. So there you go. Wonderful conversations we had. <laughs> we did. It was great. Yeah, it really was. So your story around your own mental illness didn't really happen until around college. Is that right? Well, that was my time of first diagnosis. Um, but I think and, and I think for a lot of people, it, there's definitely a time span between emergence of symptoms uh, to diagnosis um, and treatment. You know, obviously those latter two go hand in hand. For me, um, I was definitely experiencing signs and symptoms of a mental illness as a child. Um, in fact, I even presented myself to my mom, uh, you know, as a young child and said, I need to talk to someone, you know, something's not right with me. And I was told, oh, you know, Gabriel, you're fine. And, you know, when I tell this story, I make sure to say, like, this is not throw Gabe's mom under the bus. This is just this is just how it went in my family. And it was very indicative of how we operate. You know, if things get too heavy, you don't talk about it. You keep things light. You don't talk about mental health. That uh, was not OK in my family growing up. Um, you just kind of got through the day and got to tomorrow. And if you could make people laugh so much, the better which I think is a lot of the experience of uh, people with depression. Um, we're, we're quick to make other people laugh. You know, there's something going on inside of us. There's, there's sort of turmoil there, and we don't really know what to do with it. Um, and so we maybe adopt like a sardonic sense of humor and, um, 
you know, I think a lot of it's a lot of mental illness and stand up. And so anyway, that's kind of how my childhood was. I was a very anxious kid, very depressed kid. Um, how old and, were you when when you mentioned to your mom, you know, I think I need to see somebody? I would say like nine or ten. And oh, I you know, really? again, jokingly, I tell people, well, I watched a lot of Woody Allen films as a kid. <laughs> so I knew a lot about therapy and stuff. But like there's there's a little bit of seriousness in every joke. Right. Like I was the media that I was consuming was very um it was not age appropriate okay so i was exposed to a lot of things and a lot of concepts that i think the typical you know eight nine ten year old wasn't um i was watching monty python's flying circus as a young child i was watching you know a lot of a lot of things that were um exposing me to things I wouldn't have known about. And therapy was one of them. Like if you, if there's something not right with you in your mind, you go talk to someone. And so that was a logical thing for me to ask my mom. Um, and it just, you know, it didn't happen. Can you, uh, kind of walk us through what you were experiencing at that point in your life? If you can remember that made you say, you know, I think, uh, I need some therapy. Sure. Uh, definitely a lot of anxiety. And I think at, at different times in my life, I have ebbed and flowed in terms of like, you know, depression and anxiety are often arm wrestling, right, with people who who have them. And so sometimes depression is pushing down a little bit harder and winning, right? And then sometimes anxiety is coming on a little bit stronger. Um, I think as a, as a child, um, anxiety was really winning the arm wrestling contest. And I was anxious about everything. School in particular, I would chew up my pencils until they were like dust, you know, really kind of go to black uh, during math tests as early as second grade and just sit there cold sweating and, you know, to the point of trembling and I wouldn't sleep. So I had all these anxious fears that I would die in my sleep if I went to sleep, that somebody would come into my parents' room and kill them with a gun with a silencer. I knew what a silencer was when I was young. Um, so like uh, my parents would be killed and I wouldn't hear it because the gun would have a silencer. And then I would wake up in the morning and go into their bedroom and find them dead and you know blood and brains all over the walls. I had these very vivid um, anxieties and they became obsessions. And so I would lie awake all night long thinking about all this horrible stuff that was going to happen. And I convinced myself that morning was safe so that if I could stay awake all night until the first rays of sunlight would come through the window, then I could go to sleep. So I was sleeping from like, you know, 545 in the morning, six in the morning until I had to get up for school. So it was a really not a great way to grow up. Wow. That uh, is, that's really serious and we know how important sleep is for yeah, for yeah. everybody for our, your own mental health and sanity yeah and how long of a time frame would you say you went on with that little sleep oh a long time Mal. Wow. <laughs> it was a very long time um yeah and, and it you seems know. like the anxiety reached like every point of your life from school to home to sleeping Yes. Uh, um, you were just anxious about everything to a pretty high level, it sounds like. Yes. And and not and not totally, not totally without like tangible cause. So like in school, I was bullied. You know, I was very, very skinny and very sensitive 
Um, it was pretty easy to make me tear up um, as a kid. And, uh, you know, I was just the stereotypical victim. Right. Very sk- skinny, target. sweet boy. Yeah. Um, you know, the bowl cut. I wore sweatsuits. I mean, I looked like a little schmuck. I, you know, like, <laughs> of course, I was going to be bullied. It was like you couldn't script it better. And so through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, it just didn't it, it the bullying changed forms, but it didn't stop until college. And that's where it got the worst. And that's where I you know, first had thoughts about suicide. Fortunately, didn't act on those thoughts. Um, Before we get to college, did sure. the, with elementary school, middle school, were you still able to make some friendships at all? Or were you in complete oh, yeah. isolation? No, no, no. I had a lot of friends, which is funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's it's interesting. In elementary school, I had a core group of friends who I guess it was like six to seven boys. Um, they were all Jewish like me um, and me. And, and you. Um, you weren't there for me, though, Al. Where <laughs> the hell were you? Point. That's a good point. Damn it. Um, but no, and these guys were, were lovely guys, and we spent a lot of time together. And it was l- kind of late in elementary school, I would say, like fourth or fifth grade, where I kind of figured out that I was funny. And so I used that as a way to enhance my friendships or, or like uh, grow the grow the friendship outside of those that those six or seven boys I would put on little shows at the playground I would imitate the principal imitate the lunch ladies the the playground aides um, and put on like a one-man show and 25 30 kids would gather around and watch and laugh and that was a way that I was able to uh, you know gain acceptance. And by this point, I was old enough that the bullies were gone, right? Because I, in second grade, it was the fifth graders who were the bullies. Once I was in fifth grade, there were really no bullies anymore until middle school. And then, you know, there were the older ones who would take over the roles. And was this group of friends, would they support you when you were getting bullied or were your friends similar to you in ways that they were easy targets and they were all bullied? They, uh, there was one, one who was kind of an easier, uh, also an easy target for, for different reasons. But the, the other ones were kind of like, I, I guess like regular kids and they were just kind of doing their own thing. Um, did they support me? I mean, I get, I, I don't think that the bullying really occurred in the sphere where they could have like done anything about it. It was more like covert than that. And it was also done on the bus. So a lot of them didn't live on my bus route. So they weren't riding the bus with me. And, you know, a bully is going to look for opportunities where the victim is most vulnerable. Right. So it's like when you're not with your pack, you know, we're, we're coming for you. Absolutely. That's really, really true. Looking for those uh, subtle times when no adult is around or anybody else who can help stop it. Yeah, it stinks, but it's, you know, it's what it was. So you made it uh, through high school and and then you went off to college and you made it sound like your your mental illness started getting worse. And this is the time when you finally got a diagnosis, right? Yeah. When when I got to college, I knew the like on move in day that this was going to be really bad. Um, <laughs> like uh, 
And again, kind of like you asked me to describe myself and I, I said, you know, like the perfect victim. And, and this was like walking into an ambush as the perfect victim. It was a, a, a dank, like nasty old dorm hallway. And it seemed like and it, it wasn't it wasn't the case, but it was probably like seven or eight guys all like big jock thug, <laughs> you know, one of the guys names was Steak. I mean, like, you know, that that tells <laughs> you what, make all up. you need to know there. Right. And uh, and my roommate was was a total asshole. And um, and these guys just like I mean, it was instant. And I even I told my father, you know, I pulled my father aside in the hallway and I said, this looks really bad. And it was, oh, Gabriel, you know, uh, it is, it is. my father's Israeli. This is kind of my quasi Israeli uh, accent. <laughs> Gabriel, it, it is going to be fine. Do not worry about anything, you know. And uh, and it was awful. Um, and uh, and you were living away from home. Were you in the same area? I was. I I uh, my college was about an hour and 10 minutes from my parents house. And so what ended up happening um, would be that my most weekends, my father would pick me up on Friday and I would go home for the weekend. Now, I was a theater major. So when I was cast in plays, um, it wasn't possible to go home, you know, because there was a lot of rehearsals on the weekends. So that arrangement, first of all, that arrangement isn't great anyway, because all it's doing is just escaping um, what's happening. Um, I don't I don't think that's the greatest thing. I mean, I I freely did it because I wanted to get away from it. And then when it wasn't available, it, it made life there really, really hard. Because this is like you go to your dorm room. That's supposed to be like your safe, for lack of a better word, your safe space, right? Right. Um, and it was anything but. And it was always just like you know, what is waiting for me today? Um, is there going to be come on the doorknob? Is someone going to you know put porn on my computer? Whatever. It was just, it was just a constant barrage of stuff. So anytime uh, you were heading home, you'd probably have those thoughts like. What am I walking into? Yeah. And and even if nothing happened on that day, you're still freaking out about it mentally. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and probably like, even while you're doing your theater work, you're probably oh, everything it's during class, during classwork, you know, eating in the dining hall. You're always thinking about it. And I just don't think these guys understood the damage that they were causing. I think they were just like, well, this is fun. You know, we're in college, we're having fun and, you know, yeah, whatever. They, I don't think they thought about it any further than that. In other I words, I, I hear you almost saying like they weren't really even trying to be malicious and, I don't, and I mean, damaging to you, but the, it was college fun in their mind. I I guess so. I've never I, I've never been a bully. So I don't. Well, I, don't, I hope I've never been a bully, but like I've. I've never had the experience of like tormenting another human being, right. which I guess kind of is the definition of a bully. So it's it's hard for me to get into that mindset, but I think at in when I'm in my most generous state, which right. I'm not I'm not always, especially when thinking about this, it's like, well, you know, they're just fucking dumb 18-year-old guys. Right. And like, you know, nobody's very bright at that age, frankly, unless you're Doogie Hauser. Um, and so like I, I did dumb stuff when I was 18 and 19, it wasn't maliciously directed at other people, but it was still, 
dumb, impulsive stuff that I wish I hadn't done. Right. And I'm sure now that they're 40, um, if they ever deign to think about that time, they would probably go, God, yeah, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. Right. Or at least if they were with the uh, alone, they would uh, share that with you. If they were with right. their other bully friends, who knows? Uh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe some of them have evolved more and, and maybe some of them haven't. I, you know, I, I don't know. So clearly this was one of the pieces that was really damaging as far as your mental health. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And so you started experiencing more depression, more anxiety. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was very hard for me to, um, make friendships that freshman year. Um, I just felt awful and insecure. I, you know, I did have some successes. I was cast in a main stage show my freshman year, which was, you know, unusual, befriended a couple of, you know, weird seniors who were theater majors, but you know, mostly it was a very dark and very uncomfortable, sad year. And, um, I finally, worked up the courage to call residents life in March and said, you know, this situation is really, really bad and I need to be moved. And they were like, well, it's March. Um, you know, the school's over in mid May, we can't do anything. And, uh, that was crushing <laughs> to me oh, because it was imagine. like, I had, I like you, it, I don't like confrontation. I, at that age, and I'm very different now. Now I, I kind of like confrontation a little bit, but back then I really, really didn't. And I didn't want to make any fuss or any waves. And I finally worked up the, the nerve to say something and it was, you know, well, sorry. Um, and I feel like now I, I think college is so different. You know, I was in college in the, um, started in 98. I think, the mental health landscape in college has changed a lot. And I feel like if that happened today, they would be like, done, you're moved. <laughs> like, right. I, I think there's such a high, almost a hypersensitivity to mental health issues in, in many colleges, um, you know, particularly a small liberal arts school like the one I went to where kind of everybody knows everybody. Um, I think they're much quicker to act now because they don't want anything bad to happen. Right. Exactly. So you get shot down once you muster up the courage to ask to move. They tell you, no, it's too late. And like you said, just a devastating blow. Um, tell us about your mental health at this point of the stage. Uh, I mean, uh, awful. Um, but you, I guess you're getting to classes, you're getting to theater. I, yeah, I was, I was doing what I had to do, but really kind of at, at a, I would say a base level. Um, I, I certainly wasn't like super enthusiastic about anything. I certainly didn't feel like at this stage, like I was part of the college community. I was like, well, I'm just this person here who feels like shit and is just trying to make it to May. Were you still dealing with such anxiety that you mentioned when you were much younger? I, I was dealing with anxiety. Yeah. And I, well, I was, and I think I'm trying to remember like the sleeping part uh, that got easier in terms of, I wasn't having obsessive thoughts about like, uh, you know, that I would have a heart attack in the middle of my sleep. It was more like who's going to be coming into my room while I'm sleeping. Do you know what I mean? In, in to bully you? 
like that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was all focused around just the way you were treated. What so was going often. on? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But but your sleep was better. Were you able to eat um, any other symptoms around the depression and anxiety? Uh, you know, it was really, I would say, like a lot of apathy. I think I was really just didn't give a shit about anything. Um, I was disinterested. Uh, I mean, I was, I wasn't even trying to get laid. That should tell you everything you need to know right there. I mean, if, 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 if a college freshman isn't interested in that, uh, there's a problem, right? right? Um, but yeah, so I, I didn't give a shit about anything. And so when you're, when you're in that state where you don't care about anything, uh, that and then you're starting to think about suicide as an option. Combining that with with extreme apathy is a very dangerous place to be. And I don't think I realized at that time how dangerous it was. The only good thing I, I think that I was not doing was I was not drinking. I, I don't drink at all. And I got through four years of college without doing it. And I, I never have. And I feel like if I had done that, if I had had a depressant in my system, that that could have been fatal to me, I think. Oh, I think at, you're, at that time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it certainly certainly would not have helped. Yeah, I might have thought it would help. Because, right. And well, it, here's a way to gain acceptance and, you know, maybe get um, numb the feeling of what I'm feeling a little bit. But my God, like that would have been really, really bad. Right. So at this point, um, you haven't reached out to any medical professionals. No. And it's interesting. Uh, and again, I think this is kind of a commentary on how higher education is different now. Um, I don't even think I knew that my college had a counseling center. And like that's I mean, I think that's shocking um, that someone in that state just really didn't know that help was available. Uh, and I think, you know, a couple other factors contributed to my finally going to the counseling center once I, you know, realized that was an option for me. And, you know, I just a little anecdote about that when I finally did go to the counseling center. So it's in the same building as the just the or at least it was at that point. It was in the same building as the regular health center. And I went in and, uh, you know, the woman behind the desk said, how, you know, how can I help you? And I saw I'd like to make an appointment to see <clears throat> to see a therapist. Was this still your freshman year? This was uh, this was not my freshman year. This was the beginning of my sophomore year, maybe a month or two into my sophomore year. OK. Um, and she said, oh, you're here for that. She said, you can use the entrance at the back behind the hedge oh and I, and I was like, huh? <laughs> okay. So there's something wrong with going to see, to, to get there. If I, I'm here for a sore throat, there's an, there's the okay entrance. And then like, if I'm here for therapy, like there's the fucked up entrance behind the back. And, and did and, she give you like a newspaper and sunglasses and a I hat? Know, a Groucho Marx mustache. <laughs> right. So, you know, and again, so, Al, this is me looking at this as a as an almost 40 year old guy. I, I don't know. I don't remember as a kid being like, wow, she is stigmatizing mental <laughs> right. health service at the at the health center. But really, that's what she was doing. Oh, my goodness. Completely. So, you know, I mean, that's bananas. 
Um, I mean, there should have been posters all over that fucking school. <laughs> Do you need help? The counseling center is right here. You know, we love you. We care. Like um, you said, this has hopefully changed now. Yeah. That yeah is, and and that I'm, is sure, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. But I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't know that you could go for free, that there was no limit to the sessions. And once I found that out, boy, I never left that office. I was there every week. Did you get down uh, like and do the uh, military crawl on all fours so nobody saw you sneak in the did. door? I never, <laughs> okay. I never used the back entrance. I always went in through the through the main all entrance. Right, awesome. I didn't see, I didn't see any reason to do that. And and I freely talked about going to therapy um, with you know friends. Yeah. Um, but that didn't bother me. Tell us about all. your first appointment. And you you didn't have a diagnosis at that point, right? You just knew you really needed help. Correct. Yeah. I, I went to my first appointment and I, I'm going to name him by name because he was so good that I just, I, I want to celebrate him whenever I talk about him. It was, it was a gentleman named Rick Gates and Rick had these like cherub cheeks, like rosy red apple cheeks. He looked like he had two little Macintosh apples on his face and he had red <laughs> curly hair and he wore these like these Christmas sweaters you know, big snowflakes on them. And he had these shining white teeth and these shimmering eyes. And he was just like the gentlest man and sweet and empathetic. And uh, I used to love to make Rick laugh. And it, it's funny thinking about what I said earlier in the in the interview about humor and depression. And when you're really low, making somebody laugh is a really special thing. It's it's almost like a magic power, right? And to be able to make Rick laugh in a therapy session, it gave me such a high. And I, I used to have to actually tell myself, like, okay, you're not you're not here to make him laugh, but if it happens, that's great, <laughs> you right, know. Right. Um. But and so, Rick Rick was lovely, and Rick was very uh he was very moved by what i told him about my experience freshman year and he was very upset on my behalf and that validation was something that i had not really received before from, um from it, anybody it sounds like yeah like oh gabriel you're fine oh you'll it'll be fine everything's fine i mean like fine is like you know, put it on my fucking tombstone. Like everything's fine. Right. That's, that's like how I, that's how I grew up, you know? Yeah. Um, so your first appointment, were you, were you really nervous or did it feel good to go in? Like you finally had a sense of hope. I, yeah, I was not nervous at all. Uh -huh. Not at all. I was like, this is the place where I am supposed to be. In fact, it felt very similar to the first time I really, I had a, a leading role in a play and I, I got on stage and I was like doing my thing and it's like, wow, this, this feels right. This yeah. feels exactly right. That's um, really cool. And that's really how I felt about therapy that like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was probably supposed to be doing it a while ago, but I'm here now, you know. And did he give you a diagnosis right away? Oh yeah, yeah, generalized anxiety and, and depression. And yeah. did that surprise you? Um, no, I don't think so. And particularly because I did not have a super like 
vast knowledge of mental illness. Uh, you know, I didn't know the DSM from CBS. So I didn't know, you know, if he had said borderline or bipolar, I'd have been like, what the fuck is that? I, you know, so right. I knew what anxiety and depression was. And so to, to, to like lay claim to those, I hate to say labels, but I mean, they, they are, and it's fine. Um, that actually felt good, really. Kind of put a name on what's going on with you. Yeah, yeah. He he probably could have uh, diagnosed you with the anxiety if you told him about uh, thinking people were coming in with silencers and going to kill your parents at night. Oh, and we talked about all that. Yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't just stick to to what was happening in the present. We 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 went we went way back. <laughs> right, and so you started to see him how often? Weekly? Every every week. Yeah. yeah. And you were just itching to get in there every week, I bet. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I had a regular time slot. I had a regular appointment. Um, if someone asked me where I was going, I would tell them. And it, in my mind, it wasn't like advocacy or activism. Maybe, like, I don't know, maybe if I had consciously thought of it that way. Um, but now, like, I pay my therapist by Venmo. Right. And I always make it public and I always write for therapy <laughs> or like, you know, talking time for my brain. You know, I don't give a shit who sees that and, and knows that. Um, and maybe there was a little piece of that in me back then. Um, but I don't consciously remember being like, I go to therapy and I'm proud. I, I was just like, oh, this is something that I do. And it's, right. it's not shameful. It's not. It's just another thing. It's, it's fine. And I know you mentioned uh, CBT to me um, prior to the interview. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that the type of therapy he was utilizing yes. with you? Yes. Okay. Yep. Can you share uh, with the listeners what CBT is like? Sure. So a lot of um, a lot of my time with Rick and a lot of the time that I spend with uh, Brian, who's my therapist now and has been since 2010. Um, it's really talking about thoughts and behaviors and kind of their impact on, on one another, right? So if you're, if you're thinking something, um, so for example, if I'm having cognitive distortions, if I think I'm a piece of shit, if I think I'm malevolent and I'm bad for people, I'm going to then, you know, behave in a manner that is, consistent with those cognitive distortions, right? Um, so it's like thoughts lead to actions and you're trying your best to sort of reality test yourself um, and challenge those negative thoughts and those cognitive distortions. Like, is this really true? Is is it, Are you a, a malevolent force for evil in the world or are you kind of just a human being who sometimes makes shitty decisions and sometimes makes great decisions and most of the time you're just an average person like everyone else and then work on that to try to, you know, influence your behaviors in a, in a positive way and influence the thoughts. Right. Because something exactly. happens. Well, one piece I don't think you stated, like something happens to you and we create a thought out of that. Right. Yes. So maybe, uh, I don't know, a simple example is you, you walk by somebody on the street and you say hello and they don't say hi back and you're like, Oh, so-and-so is pissed at me or whatever. Yes. Yep. And, you, and make up, really, you make up stories. Yeah, exactly. And really, if your thought was, whoa, they're probably having a really busy day or maybe they just found out their dad died. Right. right? Like, but, but 
when you have the cognitive distortions, then, yeah, your mind goes to the negative. And I think if you're in a place of depression, especially, man, my mind went negative around everything and anything I heard, and I directed it towards me. I mean, they could have been bad-mouthing somebody else, and I'd be like, it's my fault, and that's what right. they're telling me. Yes. Yeah. And, and like you said, then you start behaving in a different way, right? Like, deep in my depression, I started... Asking myself, like, why am I a school administrator? These people have been teaching longer than me. I shouldn't be. And then I found myself isolating in the office more because of the depression and the cognitive distortions and telling myself I wasn't a good administrator. So I started behaving in different ways. And, and it was that, and really that, damaging. And that also leads, to, well, not leads to, but it plays off of the anxiety, right? So if you're sitting there obsessing about or, or you know, telling yourself this negative narrative of I'm a shit school administrator, then the anxiety likes to creep in and go, well, they're going to find out. They're going to find out one day. They're going to find you out. Right. And and that, you know what I mean? They're, oh, they're yeah. going to find out that you're the imposter and you're the charlatan and they're going to fire you and it's going to be public. They're going to fire you at this old school assembly and they're going to you know, strip you of your ID badge and, <laughs> exactly. and you'll be escorted out. And, well, you know, the, the whole catastrophizing. Now the, you're getting exactly. Into. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's um, a lot of that. So I find it interesting that uh, it's 2019. You're still going to a therapist, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. But my question is that you're still it sounds like you're still working on CBT strategies and does there come a point where it's like Gabe you've you've learned all of the strategies you need to be implementing them and practicing them or do you feel like you still need therapy particularly around the CBT strategies well so that's a really good question and and I think the so I have been with the same therapist since 2010 except for a small break where I was like, you know what, I just want to take a break. So I did for six months and it sucked. And then I was like, well, instead of going to the back to the same therapist, I'm going to try someone else. And I tried someone else for, I think, three months. And I was like, well, this is not good. So I went right back to to my other therapist and I've been with him ever since. There have been changes to my routine. So for a long time, I was going once a week. Um, I scaled back to every other week, maybe two years ago. And about a year ago, he said to me, you know, um, I'm taking on more administrative responsibilities at uh, the hospital that I work. And I have, you know, less time for patients. And he said also... I think you're doing well enough um, that we can really scale back to once a month and and really, you know, just devote our time together to like really check in and you know, talk about kind of what's going on, you know, between you and your family and, and how how are you working on things with your relationships with them. And so I acquiesced to that. And so I think that the the dynamic has changed in therapy. I think that I am implementing more of the strategies in my daily life. I am reality testing myself more instead of coming into the session and relying on him to sort of guide me through that. So I, in a way, I feel like the training wheels have been off for a while. And now I almost liken it to he and I are both riding bicycles next to each other and we're just kind of 
shooting the shit while we're while we're riding our own bicycles together and it's it's nice it feels like i've done work and i'm now kind of at a different place right. than i was before yeah oh it sounds great so take us back i know i jumped us ahead but take us back uh you're in college your sophomore year you start with a therapist does college get better for you then and did your living situation change or were you still in the dank hallway with these with steak and crew no, Steak and Crew <laughs> kind of it went to a different part of campus after freshman year, and that whole milieu broke up, which was great. I wasn't, you know, as a theater major, obviously, I wasn't in any of their classes, so I didn't have to see any of them in class. We were just on totally different, just academic paths. Even though it was a very small school, I saw them hardly ever, really. Um, which after freshman year, which was really great. School got better. Uh, and then junior year, it got really, really bad again <laughs> um, due to a, a, a really messed up uh, story. Um, I'll, I'm happy to tell it if you want me to. Sure. <laughs> um, okay. So and I'll, I'll, be brief, I'll be brief about it. I was in a pl- production of The Crucible which I was also in in high school and played the same role in each production, which is strange. But the director of The Crucible in college, I don't think was great. And I don't, I did not like the way that she treated us. And she was brand new to the college. And um, she would come into the dressing room in the middle of performances and give notes in the middle of the show which I think is very, at least in my experience, it was not customary. You know, once the the run starts, the director is done, right? So the director pulls back and it's now their work is done. The cast does their job. So I found that practice really bizarre and really stripping us of our, of our confidence and really ownership of the show. So after the show, she said, I'm brand new. And I want your feedback on how I was as a director. You can probably see where this is going. Oh, I can see Um, where this is going, Gabe. (laughs) So, so I, uh, and she said, I I don't like anonymous things. I want you to put your name on it. (laughs) So I, you know, I wrote her an email telling her what I thought of her as a director. And before I sent it, I sent it to the chair of the theater department. I said, listen, what do you think about this? Do you think this is okay to send? That sounds like a smart choice. Just to well, check yourself, make sure it's yeah, not too too harsh. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I think part of the reason I did it is because I it was a little harsh, mm-hmm. and I wanted to cover my ass a little bit. Yeah. So I, I sent it to him the next day. I was in the theater shop. I was cutting some wood. Uh, chair of the department comes up behind me, and he just touches my shoulder. He goes, "I read it. It's fine. Send it. It's fine." So I sent it, and I got back to my dorm room. Uh, I think it was that same day during dinner, uh, the chair of the theater department comes up to me in the cafeteria, he's in his hat and coat and he goes, uh, you need to come with me right now. And I was in the middle of, I said, I'm in the middle of dinner. Says, and this no, is no. the same guy who proofread yeah, it for you? Yeah. He said, you need to come with me right now. So I came with him. We went to his office. Uh, the lights were off. He closed the door, which he never does, um, alone with a student. Um, and he said, uh, we have a real problem. This, this director of the play, she wants you out of the school. Uh, she wants you expelled. Um, she said, he goes, she feels threatened by you that you used 
uh, threatening language in your email. And I was like, well, you've got to be kidding me. And he said, look, I know you and I know, I know that there's no one has anything to fear from you, but she's making a big stink about this. And she wants a meeting with you and the director of campus police, um, where you will promise her, you know, that you're not a threat to her. And I said, I'm not doing that. I said, I'm not meeting with her. Uh, I said, you, you, you know, forget it. That's did you, not happening. Did you say like you proofread this? You said it of was course, okay. Of course I did. Of course I did. And, and he said, did, I, I said, I know, I know, but I was reading it as someone who knows you and loves you and, and cares about you. And she, she doesn't. And well, so you were asking him to read it from her perspective. Well, like that should have been right. clear. <laughs> but the problem, the problem is, and I do see it from his point of view. When you look at any, when you look at anything, whether it's a situation, you witness a crime or an a traffic accident, or you read an article in the newspaper, you're looking at it through your lens, right? Through the through your yeah. personal experience, through your own personal biases, your prejudices, your affinities, whatever. Yeah. Right? yeah. So he had uh, two and a half years of of knowing me on on a very personal level. We were very close. She. So he was looking at, he could not help but look at that, go, oh, well, this is Gabe. This, you know, this is how Gabe talks, you know. Right. Um, and so I, I get it. I'm still angry at him. <laughs> um, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's been a long time. And I actually brought this up with him. I saw him in May. And I talked to him about this incident. And he professed to have no memory of it. Oh like my the whole, goodness. The whole, which, which actually hurt even more. Right. Because I was like, wow, this was an incredibly awful and really pivotal moment in my development and certainly my stay at the college. And you don't even remember it. Now, whether right. he's telling me the truth or not, whether it was just too uncomfortable for him to like delve into whatever, um, I don't know, but it sucked. In hindsight, thinking about the letter, and I know it was a long time ago, do you think she had reason to worry about her safety that she would ask a security guard to to meet with you? The, I'll tell you exactly what she had uh, the the biggest problem with, I think. And she's French. <laughs> I don't know if that, that plays into this, but like, you know, I, she's foreign. I don't know. English wasn't her first language, whatever. I used the word emasculated. I wrote your your practice of coming into the dressing room and giving us notes during the show was emasculating to us. It kind of took away ownership of the show. And she said, oh, he used sexually threatening language. Uh, I used the word emasculated. Right. I mean, like, really? I mean, I think <laughs> most most people understand that that's a metaphorical term. Right. And that it's not I'm not literally saying you were coming in with hedge clippers, cutting people's balls off. Right. Um, and I certainly wasn't vulgar or, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, I think she got her feathers ruffled. I think she didn't like that someone was criticizing her and she, you know, flipped. you ask for feedback. You're going to, you, you want honest feedback. You would think, right? I mean, she well, asked for it. Yeah. I think she wanted praise. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, nobody, nobody Clearly. likes to be, Nobody likes to be criticized, right? Especially by some little shit, you know, theater major who gives a shit what I think. But the the long and short of it is that she, you know, he was able to talk to her and she agreed to drop the issue. The, the coda to this was that I had to take a class 
to graduate as a theater major that only she taught. And I, uh, I told the chair, I said, I'm not taking that class. And he goes, oh, well, you know, what do you want me to do about it? You know, you, you have to take this class to graduate. And I said, you know what? You caused this mess, so you figure it out. And so what ended up happening was I took an independent study uh, in playwriting with him my senior year and was able to graduate as a theater major. So that's how that okay. went down. All right, cool. So it sounds like, I mean, if you're in the midst of a lot of depression and anxiety, like you really stood up for yourself and, uh, you know, didn't just sit back on your haunches. And in my mind, like when you're depressed, your tail kind of goes between your legs and it's like, okay, I'm sorry or, or whatever. Yeah. And that's my usual back then. That was my go-to. Uh-huh. Um, and that was, that was my history. I was bullied by a girl in elementary school. And when I went to tell a teacher about it, the teacher made me apologize to the entire girl's class that I would accuse a girl of bullying. Oh my Um, and I was crying. I mean, I was crying as I did this, as I apologized to the class and she was sitting there staring at me. And so, but I did it right. So yeah, definitely acquiescing and, and caving was my go-to. And I do credit going to therapy in college with helping me advocate in this situation. My junior year, this happened um, with this professor and I was just so outraged and her, her claim was so off that I just, I guess maybe even in spite of myself just fought back. Right. It was just absurd to me. Uh Um, so and and was this incredibly damaging as far as your mental health? Because you made it sound like sophomore year you started getting counseling, you started getting better and better until yes. this yes. incident. Yeah, and this was like a to- a complete gut punch. This was this was just like it, this reinforced all the narratives that I had told myself forever and ever. You are bad. You are you know awful and ugly. There's something ugly inside of you. You're not good for people. And it's like, hey. Here's the reinforcement for that message. Unfortunately, it just came at a really shitty time. And so how did you manage through the rest of your junior year and what was senior year like? Um, I really just tried my hardest to process what happened in therapy. And when I wasn't in therapy, to just forget about it. And I threw myself into theater. I mean, I did show after show after show. Um, I was writing plays, the independent study with the the chair of the theater department. I was producing one play a week, uh, you know, like an original 10 minute play every week. I was writing a book (laughs) at the time. So I was really just trying to immerse myself in in creative pursuits, little fantasy worlds that I would create in these plays and really give them kind of care and attention and, and just try to not really not think about this. Um, I lived off campus, uh, in an apartment. Alone. And so like, uh, yeah. Okay. And, and so I think that was, uh, and I did that junior and senior year. I just, when I wasn't in a play, I really didn't want to be on campus at all. Um, and obviously I was never in another play that, that this woman directed. <laughs> um, right. but, uh, I just I wanted to be in that world all the time 
And would you describe it as a healthy outlet? Because it certainly sounds like it. Writing plays, acting in plays, um, and doing all of this, which was your passion. So was it a, a healthy outlet, or were you just going over the top in it, like 80 hours a week theater? No, I don't think so. I think it was healthy, and I think part of what I was doing, certainly when I was writing the one acts, I wrote a series of, of one acts about my family, and that really, that was very, very helpful to me. It was the first time I had tried to, like, figure out my dynamic with my parents um, on paper in a way that was creative and funny and painful, um, and I got a lot of positive reinforcement um, you know, from, from my independent study director on the plays, you know, um, these plays are really warm and sweet and real, um, because I had been writing a lot of like surrealist comedy, a lot of weird shit. And when I was finally sitting down to really like, think about the cadence of my, the way my parents talk and the way that we don't deal with things, <laughs> um, that was actually kind of therapeutic too. So I think it was healthy. Yeah, it sounds very therapeutic. Yeah, and it was fun. Awesome. You know, so I enjoyed it. Um, and you continued. Obviously, you you still have therapy. At some point, you decided to try medication. Correct. Yeah, I. Uh, it's funny. In college, I was recommended to go on medication, and I actually made it as far as having an appointment with a psychiatrist. So the college did not have a psychiatrist on campus at that time. I am sure they do now, but I had to make an appointment, uh, with a psychiatrist in the city. I went, I listened to him and I did not go on anything. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I, I don't want to do this. Do you, um, do you remember what it was at that point that really dissuaded you? Uh, he was talking a lot about side effects. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was scary to me as a 20, 21 year old. Right. Uh, um, you know, uh, he indicated the possibility that I might have to be on medication for the rest of my life. And I, that was scary to me. Well, again, like you said, 21 too. Sure. And also I think that I had this idea in my mind that if you had to take medication for a mental health challenge, like that was really bad. Like, in my mind, going to therapy was fine. So it was interesting how I stigmatized myself and, and anyone else who takes medication, right? Like therapy is okay. Medication is, wow, you're really far gone, <laughs> right. you know, uh, mm -hmm. if you need that. So I was scared that I guess that my therapist thought I was that in need of help. And I didn't, I didn't want that kind of help. So I just pushed it away. And that cycle repeated itself. I started going to therapy again in 2010, as I mentioned. And my therapist, I started talking about medication not too long after I started, probably six months, seven months. And I kind of fought him off for two years. Uh, and he would retreat a little bit and come back, you know, a couple weeks later with the idea, uh, hey, you know, are you giving it any more thought? You know, what do you think? I think this might really help you. Um, and I would just push, 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 uh, until finally, um, I was just in a state, a really not a great place, um, where I was like, I, I, I need more, I need more than this. 
Do you remember what was going on in your life at that point? Oh yeah, a lot. Um, I had, by the time I decided that I needed medication, I had two years in as a frontline staff member at a locked inpatient crisis psychiatric hospital. Um, I ran groups uh, for the patients. Did um, did you uh, did you have a so your your college was all around uh, theater? Did you most, have most any of kind it, of most of it? Did you have credentials to be providing therapy? So what I had, uh, well, two things about that. So by the time I started working at the hospital, I had a master of arts in education degree. So, and I had taken some addictions classes, uh, and I had also done a fair number of psychiatric transports, uh, while working on an ambulance for two years. As like an EMT? I was an EMT, uh, for a private company. We mostly did, uh, inter-facility transports. How did and, you how did you make the leap from uh, huh. theater into EMT and and that type of work? Yeah, so uh, when I graduated college, I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. I, I I was working at an eyeglass shop that I had worked at during college, and you know on breaks and stuff. And I worked there for another year. Tried to get into the police academy, that did not work due to failing one of the physical fitness tests. Uh, anybody who knows what I look like physically, you can guess that I could not lift the, the weights. <laughs> um, so I was just like fumping around and had no clue what the frig I was going to do. You and really was, wanted I, to become a cop? That, very, very, very much so. What was the so. intrigue uh, of being a cop? And I only say it like that just because I know you and I, I don't know you that well, but I find that really interesting that you would want to be a cop. So I was I was super drawn to law enforcement, and I think one of the there were a couple reasons why I grew up in a very affluent suburb of Philadelphia, and police officers were very much maligned by you know kids my age. I like, got oh, fucking cops, you know, they just breaking up our parties and shit. And I never went to parties, so you know, cops never broke up my party. <laughs> um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that experience growing up, and. Um, I, I saw them as representatives of something honorable, something that I, I, you know, wanted to be a part of. And when I was a very impressionable guy, I guess like maybe 17 or 18, I read a book called The Hell-Raising Career of David Dirk. Uh, and David Dirk was a uh, upper middle class Jewish kid. Uh, he went to Amherst and uh, became a New York City patrolman. And along with a cop who you probably have heard of, uh, Frank Serpico, uh, exposed vast, uh, unbelievable corruption in the New York City Police Department. And it led to the formation of the Knapp Commission and all these hearings and a lot of shit hit the fan. And, you know, David Dirk was like, to me, I wanted to become David Dirk. I wanted to become this, you know, sensitive, thoughtful Jewish police officer who I, I didn't have any ambition of like uncovering huge corruption, but I wanted to be this cop with integrity that people in the community liked having there, that, that they respected, and who did a, a decent job and was fair and treated people like human beings. I think now the police officer is thought of more as like a social worker uh, on the job, you know, on the street. And that's the kind of cop that I wanted to be. I wanted to use my mouth and my brains and not my fists, you know, to solve problems. 
Um, so I really, really wanted to do that. And it just was not, it was just not meant to be. So as somebody dealing with depression and anxiety, was that another, just a devastating blow when you didn't pass the physical test? Yes. Yeah. That, that was, that really hit very, very hard because for two main reasons, because I had trained very hard, uh, cause I knew it was going to be hard to pass the physical for me. You know, I have asthma, you know, which is required when you're Jewish you, and, you, by law, you have to have asthma. So I have <laughs> asthma. And, and this and, was after you know. a bunch, like two years of the Academy or something. No, 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 okay. no. So I was training for the Academy. Gotcha. So there's a couple different ways. Some law enforcement entities will hire you as what's called a probationary police officer and then pay to send you to the Academy. Okay. The other way you can do it is go to an Academy and pay for it yourself and then complete the academy and then try to get hired by a police department as a fully trained, you know, cadet. Right. And then they just put you on the street after an orientation with the department. So I was going to do it the the way where you go through the academy first and then try to get hired. Right. So I had made this plan. I was going to enter the academy on this date. And so, you know, they test you the first the the second day of the academy. And so I trained for months leading up to this. So. I trained hard, so it was an incredible disappointment. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't do enough. The other reason that it was such a such a blow was because when I told my parents that I wanted to become a cop, it was the equivalent of, and it's hard for me to even think of an equivalent. It was almost like I told them that I wanted to be a gigolo, or <laughs> I. You know, I want to be the first person to kill himself on the moon. I mean, like <laughs> I'm trying to like they they reacted like I had just thrown acid in their faces. <laughs> right. And I think part of it is like, you know, that's not. And my mother even said these words like that's not for you, Gabriel. And I said to her, so what are you saying? It's for some other mother's son. Like, what am I special? Um and she just said, that's, that's not for you. So I think there was this, this definite stigma. I don't know. I guess she was brought up to believe like cops are Irish Catholics and that's, that's who's supposed to do the job. I don't know what, but they were both very, very upset. And it created a lot of stress and drama in our house. And like, you know, by the time the Academy start date had rolled around, like they were finally coming around to the idea of like, well, this is this is what he's going to do. Like he's they kind of sort of accepted it. My father would come to the track with me sometimes and run with me. And then it was over. <laughs> and it was like, wow, I, I put my parents through all that shit for nothing. It It sucked. It didn't throw you into another major spiral down, though. I no, it did. And I just was like, I have no idea what to do with my life. And I was just completely directionless. And I didn't care uh, about anything. Because I was living in a very cheap apartment. Uh, it wasn't like I was going to be thrown out on the streets and my parents would have taken me home anyway. So I just really kind of just didn't give a shit again, you know, kind of back to that nihilistic way of just not really caring. Right. What what happened? And after that, after that, I um, 
through a, a very circuitous way, I, I wound up becoming a, t- uh, a tutor for a young man with cerebral palsy. Um, I tutored him in his in his home. And his mother said to me one day, like, do you want a job? And I was like, uh, sure. Uh, and she hired me to be a loan officer uh, to, to process low interest loans for people with disabilities so that they could buy hearing aids or um, low vision readers or adapted vans, you know, wheelchair vans. And I did that for a year. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I mean, li- less than zero idea of what I was doing. <laughs> You know, put put numbers in front of me and debt to income ratios. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but the 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 good thing is I wasn't actually making the decisions. I was presenting these loan applications to the board of directors and they would make the decisions. I was just the processor of these loans. So, you know, everybody got their loans who should have gotten them. I don't think I fucked anybody over. <laughs> um, but I did go into work obsessing every day about how I have no idea what I'm doing and this is horrible and I'm I'm you know, ruining everybody's life and I'm I'm a, a cancer on everything that I touch, and I had many freakouts in my colleagues. I had one colleague. It was a very small operation in my colleague's office about how I'm I'm terrified every day I walk in here and I don't know what to do and. I had an office with a desk and a phone and a door and I'm treated like an adult and I'm actually just a child. Um, and I don't think this poor woman knew what the fuck to do with me. I mean, she was like the six foot four German woman. Uh, you know, she was very like tough, but uh, she tried her best to help me and she did. And I, I somehow got through it and was then laid off. And then I started to work on the ambulance cause I had again, no direction and it was a quick course. Uh, I think it was eight weeks full time passed and started working on a truck. Uh, and that's where I started doing a lot of psychiatric runs. And those were my favorite calls. I found them absolutely fascinating, uh, you know, taking people who were involuntarily committed from an ER to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, people who had attempted suicide. I'll, I will never, ever, ever forget um, this young, gorgeous African American woman um, who had tried to kill herself by drinking bleach, and they had actually had to repair um, her esophagus with stomach lining. They had removed some of her stomach lining and and had connected it to her esophagus. And oh I'll, I'll never forget the way that she looked. And she couldn't talk, and I just held her hand in the back of the truck on the way to the psychiatric hospital, and we just looked at each other, you know, for the duration of the ride. And it was just this feeling of wanting to do something uh, for her and and for other people uh, that somehow led me back, that led me to that psychiatric hospital. And uh, I was there for five years, and it changed my life in many, many ways, some of them good, some of them really not. But it was at that time, this is going back to your question about medication. (laughs) I just was thinking about that. Yeah. It's like, why the, what, where the hell are we? Um, (laughs) Where by 2012, I had been working there for two years. I had had twins. My sister's husband had died of cancer at 34 uh, oh my goodness. like a couple months after my twins were born. So it was just like 
chaos. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. mean, and your twins were just had just been born. Essentially. They were just born. I was on paternity leave for nine weeks and everything was just totally upside down. Right. Um, and so uh, by the time I got back to the hospital from paternity leave, I was just like barely effective uh, on the unit. I, I mean, I thought. I was, I was thinking about my kids. I was thinking about my sister's husband. I was thinking about her son. Uh, I was thinking about my family was all fucked up. My family of origin. Um, we, we were all just like circling the drain. Um, and then I had to go to work in this very volatile, uh, environment where you have to be hypervigilant because you don't know what's going to happen you know, from one second to the next. Uh, and it was just a, a mess. And so um, I went into therapy one day and I said, hey, remember that psychiatrist you were telling me about? I'd really like to look him up. And so I started on Lexapro and it did nothing um, for me. And then I switched to Vibrid. And that is what I have been on uh, since. Okay. Wow. So it was just this kind of culmination it sounds like of so many different stressors in your life that you felt like you couldn't really manage and needed something more than just the therapy you'd have had been having. yeah yeah and and i guess i finally confronted this idea that i'd had like well i, I really just want to do this on my own i right. really just get better on my own and then i find like a light bulb went off and i was like you dumb fuck you haven't been doing it alone you have a therapist, you have a wife, you have friends who you call and talk to and have coffee with or breakfast. You have your colleagues at the hospital that you open up to. And so like this idea that I want to get better on my own was a fantasy anyway. Right. So why not just fucking take medicine? You're already not doing it on your own. And so that realization was very freeing um, to me. And the first med you said didn't work. You tried it for how long were you trying the first med before you jumped onto a second one? I think I was on Lexapro for like three months, um, maybe four. And I just didn't feel anything really, anything different. And so, uh, you know, the switch was made. Uh, I think, you know, you started a very low dose of Vibrid and then you work up to 20 milligrams. And. I would say by about, I don't know, maybe six months in, but it's a little, it's a little hard to remember by now, but I was able to, to function better and not obsess more as much as I had been before during the time when I was working at the hospital, uh, the anxiety really came roaring back and I would lie awake at night thinking about who got admitted overnight Who's going to be on the census in the morning? What a group am I going to be running? What is, I mean, like just endless, endless. And it got to the point where my shift started at seven, but I would arrive at the hospital at five 20 in the morning and I, it, you know, pitch black outside. All of the night nurses were still on because their shift ended at 7 AM. Right. So like I would swipe in i would do all the paperwork from the night before process everything i would eavesdrop on the night nurses so i would get an, a feeling of you know what the unit was like what happened overnight listen to the report that they would give to the day nurses and by the time my supervisor showed up everything was done 
like I had made the schedule for the entire day. I had assigned patients to different staff members in the allied therapy department. I mean, I was out of my fucking mind. Um, <laughs> and she, and this is not like an insult to her, but like, she was like, Oh, everything's done. I can sit and eat my yogurt and granola and my banana. And you know, you like, made her I, life pretty easy. And yeah. And like, unfortunately that's the thing about, and I do not have OCD. Um, I do have obsessive compulsive tendencies. And so when you have an employee who has obsessive compulsive tendencies, uh, coupled with anxiety and that lends itself sometimes to hyper productivity, right? Yeah. Which can be very desirable in a workplace. So unfortunately my behaviors were being rewarded. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Rather so like, than I, somebody saying, Whoa, Gabe, you doing okay? Cause man, yeah. you're getting here two hours early and yeah. Like no. And the night nurses would be like in the beginning, they'd be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like they didn't even really know who I was because <laughs> right. they, they didn't, they weren't supposed to see me. Like they were supposed to be in their cars driving home when I would be coming in. But gradually it just got to be, Hey Gabe, you know, wow. and, and we would become, I became friends with some of the night nurses, you know, we enjoyed seeing each other. And so like, it was all positive reinforcement. No one was like, you cannot come in this building before seven o'clock. Right. Um, For your own uh, right. mental health. <laughs> But finally, what what um, happened was the HR person was like, what are you trying to do? Get paid for extra work? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, start my pay at seven o'clock. I'm not trying to like whatever. So like, oh, fine. Well, you can you can come in early if you like if you want to do that. But you can't swipe in until six fifty five. I was like, oh, OK, I can do that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And all of this was what led to the meds or was this even after you were on the medications? Uh, this definitely led to the meds. Okay. Um, some of the behaviors continued after. However, I was able to sleep better. I wasn't as like super revved up about everything, um, you know, getting into 2013. And um, I resigned in, um, in 2013 and the medical director um, declined to accept my resignation which was very, <laughs> I've never had that happen before or since. And I said, well, I actually did get another job. I got a job in center city. Uh, so I said, I am leaving. And she said, well, what can we do to keep you? And I said, well, I would like to work off the unit. I said, I, I don't, I don't think I'm effective anymore on the unit. Um, and she said, well, I think you have a lot of skills and abilities. You know, what do you think you'd like to do? And I said, well, this is a nonprofit hospital. And um, we're eligible for grants, and I would love to write grants for the hospital. I'd love to try to do fundraising. Um, and I had done that in, in a previous life. And so she said, great, <laughs> I try to do that. And she found office space for me. And I got a desk and a phone. And uh, my first year, including uh, individual contributions, grants, Outreach to municipalities. I was able to raise a hundred thousand dollars and wow. the next year I raised more um, That's awesome. And and it was great. And uh, and then I left Then <laughs> <laughs> I really I was like ah, I've had enough um, Yeah, and from there you went on to So while while I was there I started working part-time um, for a mental health 
website called OC87 Recovery Diaries. And this is, it's an online publication. We do one essay a week, uh, a first person essay about mental health and produce one uh, professional documentary film a month. And, and, and this is your current job, right? It is. It and, is. And this uh, this website is so rich. And like you mentioned, there are documentaries on there that are incredibly professional, tons of stories. It is a heavy content, uh, beautifully well done site. Thank you, Al. I, I love, I love, love, love what I do. And this is, it's really the first time that I've ever not felt like a fake or a fraud or like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or this is really like the marriage of my advocacy work, my skills as a writer and an editor, as a creative individual, um, as someone who's passionate about mental health and suicide prevention. Um, I mean, it's like, it's, it's the finally a job that makes sense. And so I, I stumbled upon it when I was working at the, at the psychiatric hospital and uh, was hired to edit essays part time. And then in 2016, I was asked to be editor in chief and I took that opportunity. And uh, that is what I'm still doing today as, as my, as my day job, I manage two part-time editors, uh, a social media director, uh, our uh, graphic designer who beautifully lays out all of the posts and, you know, oversee the films, uh, have a hand in, you know, who we profile as far as films go. And it's, it's just, it's a wonderful opportunity to be of service in the mental health sphere, but no longer being on the front lines that was getting to be, even after I had moved to administration for the last two years, I was there. It, the environment there was just, it was too much. It was just too much for me. Right. Right. And, uh, this uh, site also has podcasts as well. Yeah, so it has a podcast. The podcast ran for about a year and a half, and we suspended it. And really, the 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 only reason that we suspended it was it was it was getting expensive to produce. And um, as I'm sure you know, um, it, it ain't cheap uh, in terms of uh, you know material and and all of that kind of stuff and technology. So it was it was getting to be a little much. Um, so we've really scaled that back and are, are focusing on the essays and the films, right? The films are spectacular. So well done. And can you tell us a little bit about how the website and the organization came about? Sure. So it was founded by a gentleman named Bud Clayman and, uh, Bud is, he was the editor in chief, um, since its inception until 2016, um, when my phone rang right around Thanksgiving, I said, wow. So I guess this will be my third anniversary coming up, um, in that position. Thank you. Um, so Bud started OC87 recovery diaries because he had produced a full length documentary film about his own mental health recovery. It's called OC87, the bipolar major depression, OCD Asperger's movie. I think I got all of those in the right order. Possibly not, but he made this film. It's a beautiful film. It's it's wonderful. You can watch the entire thing on YouTube. And then Bud took this film to film festivals all over the country and and mental health conferences. And he was really struck at these film screenings about how moved people were by his experience that they wanted to share their own. You know, people would would 
talk either during the screening, uh, I mean, during the talk back or, or afterwards, they would grab him and, and talk to him like in a lobby or something and share about their brother or their spouse or themselves and their mental health journey. And, and, you know, Bud heard enough of these stories that he said, wow, I, you know, there are so many stories out there just like mine and different from mine. I want to give people a venue to tell these stories. And, and fortunately, you know, Bud had the means to create this website and this organization. It started out very, very small and content was published kind of whenever they had it, whenever they were fortunate enough to have an essay. Um, now we're, I mean, much of my job is kind of being the gatekeeper um, and reviewing essays as they come in. We get a lot more essays than we can use. We have content pre-scheduled through the end of February, and we're getting new essays all the time, working with writers all over the world, um, and it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Yeah, it's fantastic. Everybody should check out that website. Some great, great material on there. I also want to ask you about your uh, very famous vehicle that you drive. Oh, that that guy. Yeah, so, that guy. My, my little friend. So I, I'm very fortunate uh, enough to be able to say that one of my best friends uh, has a very big heart, uh, but a very small engine. Uh, I drive a 1963 VW Beetle, and he is a Herbie the Love Bug replica. For those of you who are not uh, familiar with the, the Love Bug franchise, it was uh, a film, it was the second highest grossing film of 1969, the, the original Love Bug. And it's a, a film about a, a car with a mind and heart of his own, this ugly little Volkswagen, who um, you know really becomes attached to his owner, played by Dean Jones in the original film. And uh, it's just, it's a, a beautiful, sweet movie about heart and love. And so I just totally fell in love with this film when I was five years old. And I vowed one day, you know, I will have a love bug myself. And of course, kind of like telling my parents I need therapy. You know, when I told my parents, I, you know, I'm going to have a Herbie one day. They're like, yeah, 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 that's great. Um, <laughs> sure you will. So, and but I did. And, uh, you know, bought this white bug in New Jersey and turned him into Herbie with all the graphics and everything. And, and you know, as, as funds have allowed, I've made upgrades safety upgrades and also upgrades to make him look more like the love bug. I've added fat racing tires and racing wheels and a fake, uh, canvas sunroof to make him look more the part. And, but the, the, the biggest, uh, the most important thing that I have added on is the number for the national suicide prevention lifeline, which is uh, all over the rear window of the car via a professional, uh, vinyl graphic that has thousands of little dots through it so that I can see through it when I'm in the car, but looking at it from the outside, it looks completely uh, opaque. Um, it's a very bold, big graphic. And so wherever I go and Herbie and I go everywhere <laughs> together, people see it. And the thing about suicide is you have no idea what the person driving behind you on the freeway is going through if they need to see it or if they don't, or if they know a colleague who needs to see it or uh, their daughter or whatever. And so it's a way that I can spread awareness through a very lovely, uh, a very high visibility way. People talk to me all the time about suicide now. 
Uh, I have conversations about it when I go get groceries, uh, you know, when I stop at the bakery, um, when I get gas. And it's wonderful because for way too long, it's been this taboo thing that like you say it in a whisper, if you dare say it at all. And um, we just need to get over that because, you know, in the most recent year that we have statistics for, we lost 47,000 people uh, in this country. And that's just who we know. Uh, according to death certificates. So this is a huge problem. It's something that, you know, obviously, you know, I've struggled with. Um, I lost an aunt to suicide in, in 04. And working with people day in and day out at the hospital, it just doesn't leave you, you know. So it's one way to, to, be, of, to be of service, I guess, to be uh, of use. It's fantastic. It's really fantastic. And did you, I know you went on a trip recently and did you make a documentary of it or were you just taking video snippets? No, I, I, so I put four GoPro cameras on the car, three mounted outside and one inside. And I went on a journey from Philadelphia to the Vermont Canada border and back. So that was around 1800 miles, the route that I took. And, uh, we did have some incidents um <laughs> but we we made it we made it back it took 11 days and we made it back and what i ended up doing with the footage and and you know the point of the trip was to meet people who have been impacted by suicide whether they are attempt survivors or lost survivors or people who uh you know i interviewed the chair of the theater department from the college that i went to that's how i got to have that conversation with him again in may um, about what had happened when I was an undergrad that he didn't remember. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I went on this trip and had people that I knew I wanted to talk to. And then I also knew I was going to meet people who I had never, you know, had never met. Uh, and that is what ended up happening. So when I got home, I took all of this, you know, hundreds of hours of footage and I was able to get funding from a, a family foundation to have all of this footage professionally edited into a 50 minute film. And that will be done at the end of this month, uh, November. And then I will hopefully start setting up screenings, uh, you know, December, January. That is really cool. It was great. It was a blast. The trip was, uh, I had a wonderful time and I loved the interactions that I had with people I knew and people I didn't, what I learned about suicide um, and its aftermath from people, some really beautiful connections. And I hope that the film just gets people talking. That's all. Yeah, it's fantastic. I know, I think you're on Facebook as well, right? I know I saw some snippets of your trip on there, I believe. I'm, I'm on, I have a Facebook account. Um, Herbie has his own Facebook account. Uh, Herbie has his own Instagram account. It's at uh, lovebugtrumpshate. Some people ask me if that's political. I always answer, what do you think? Um, so, you know, if you like that, great. If you don't like it, you don't follow me. But that's uh, that's where you can find us online. And uh, you'll be able to watch a 10-minute preview of the film. It's on YouTube, uh, and it's called A Man, A Bug, and A Mission. So if you put that into YouTube, you'll be able to watch uh, a 10-minute teaser of the film. Awesome. And of course, the OC87 Recovery Diaries is OC87RecoveryDiaries.org is that website. Do you have any other websites where people can find out more about you? 
Oh my God. If I'm on another website, I don't know about it. So <laughs> okay, I, ho- I right. hope not. Um, all right. All right. So yeah. people know where to find you. They um, do. And I'll put that in the show notes, of course. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you, Gabe, if you can share a piece of advice that you would give somebody who may be listening and going through a challenging time right now. Um, yeah, there, there are so many different challenging times in a person's life that you have no control over, right? I mean, a crisis could hit at any moment. You could lose your job. You could get a phone call. Your daughter's dead. You, you know, I, I mean, I, so what you do have control over is whether you stay silent or whether you reach out. And I would really, truly, sincerely, beautifully, and earnestly hope is that you allow yourself the permission to reach out to someone, anyone. It doesn't have to be a clinically trained mental health professional. It can be a friend. It can be a trusted colleague that you need to freak out in her office. It can be a family member, whomever, whomever it is, find someone to talk to and find someone to talk to before you get too deep into whatever it is that you're into, whether it's depression or anxiety or addiction or whatever, because then you're not going to reach out like that option is almost gone and you just have to hope that by that point people will reach in and people don't always do that. Um, we're very good in the mental health community about telling people, reach out, reach out, call the lifeline, do this, talk to, talk to someone. Da, 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 da. And I just did it too. Right. But what I'm trying to say is be, be as proactive as you can be. Maybe when you're starting to not do well so that you're able to reach out for help before the crisis hits because you don't want to be you, a you don't want to be in that situation at all and b you certainly don't want to be in it alone so make sure that you're surrounding yourself with the right people open empathic non-judgmental people who you can feel comfortable going to if you need to all right excellent advice reach out and ask for help a really really important uh, piece of advice So, Gabe, I want to thank you very much for all the time uh, on the podcast here on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Also for all of the work you do, OC87 Recovery Diaries, with your love bug, Herbie, and uh, everything you do to to help support others through depression and suicide awareness and prevention. It's a privilege to do it, and it helps me too. So thank you. All right. Stay healthy. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.